Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of our award-winning podcast. I'm Tom Bresson. And I'm Jen. Today, we have a fascinating topic that could very well change the way we think about cognitive skills training. We'll dive deep into a research paper that examines the interplay between individualization, adaptivity in digital games, and the training of executive functions. Yes, those high-level mental skills that help us get things done. Absolutely, Jen. The paper we're dissecting today is Individualization in Cognitive Skills Training, Essential or Superfluous? Examining the Effectiveness of an Adaptive Game for Training Executive Functions in Young Adults. Authored by Friederike Blume and colleagues, this study is a beacon of light in understanding the potential of digital games as cognitive training tools. And why does this matter? Well, for starters, our cognitive abilities, particularly executive functions, play a huge role in everything from decision-making to academic success. If there's a way to improve these skills, we want to know about it. Right on. Before we proceed, a quick note for our listeners. Don't let the scientific jargon dissuade you. We'll break it down and make sure you understand each concept thoroughly, so stick with us. With that said, let's talk about executive functions. These are higher-order cognitive skills that include three core areas. Shifting, our ability to switch attention between tasks. Updating, a facet of working memory where we revise information. And inhibition, controlling impulses and distractions. The idea here is that these skills are like muscles. Training them could make them stronger. In this context, the researchers wanted to see if playing a specially designed game could act as a sort of workout for the brain, enhancing these executive functions in young adults. They split the participants into two groups, one playing an adaptive version of the game, where difficulty was adjusted based on performance, and another playing a non-adaptive version with fixed difficulty levels. The aim was to compare the effectiveness of these approaches in improving cognitive skills. And you might wonder, did they find that individualization in training via adaptive difficulty was essential? The answer might surprise you, so don't jump to conclusions just yet. The study spanned over four consecutive days, with participants playing the game for a total of 120 minutes and taking various cognitive tests before and after the gaming sessions. That's a solid setup. We're going to dive into the methodology, dissect their findings, and discuss the implications of their research after a short break. So grab your coffee, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Let's zoom into the methodology. The research team meticulously designed their experiment to compare the effects of adaptivity in a digital game on young adults' executive functions. They used a game called All You Can E.T., which requires players to follow dynamic rules to feed aliens the correct food and drink. It's essentially providing the mental gym for working out the shifting aspect of executive functions. Exactly. In the adaptive version of the game, the difficulty, meaning how fast the aliens descended and how complex the feeding rules were, would change depending on how well the participant was doing. The non-adaptive version, by contrast, had fixed level progressions meaning everyone faced the same challenges regardless of performance. Researchers measured the participants' shifting, inhibition, and updating skills before and after playing the game. They hypothesized that individuals playing the adaptive version would engage in more challenging gameplay and thus show more significant improvement in all three executive function areas. Now, 
Drum roll, please. For the results, the findings demonstrated that indeed, engagement with the shifting game enhanced individuals' abilities in shifting, updating, and inhibition, all critical areas of cognitive functioning. But here's the kicker. Adaptivity didn't seem to play a role in the results. Whether participants played the adaptive or non-adaptive version, their skills improved. Now that's not to diminish the value of the adaptive games. They did lead to more complex gameplay, but that didn't translate into differential outcomes in this instance. About implications, this study provides evidence supporting the effectiveness of executive function games. It could mean new, accessible methods for cognitive skill development, potentially benefiting a range of areas from education to mental health. And finally, in wrapping up our discussion, we reflect on the broader relevance of this paper. It challenges the notion that individualization in cognitive training is crucial for success. The clear improvements exhibited by participants in this study, regardless of the game version played, suggest that the act of training itself is valuable. It poses exciting questions about the future of cognitive training in education. What constitutes an optimal learning environment and the role of technology in fostering our cognitive abilities. So join us next time as we continue to explore groundbreaking research and untangle the complex fabric of human cognition and learning on our podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Until then, keep those neurons firing. Hey folks, are you ready to give your brain the workout it didn't know it needed? Introducing Brain Buffet, the zany cognitive skills game that's like a five-star restaurant for your neurons. Whether you're a young adult or just young at heart, get ready to feed your gray matter a feast of puzzles, challenges, and alien invaders with quirky dietary restrictions. Brain Buffet adapts to you or doesn't, because apparently it doesn't matter. Play at your own pace and watch those cognitive muscles flex with no judgment. Swipe right on our shifting tasks. Tap into the power of inhibition with a Don't Feed the Aliens After Midnight minigame. And remember, updating your working memory has never been more repeatedly necessary. Use promo code NEUROBUFF for a 20% increase in your gameplay difficulty. Or not. Who cares? It's all in good fun, and science says you'll get brainier anyway. Serving up a buffet of brain power with a side of intergalactic hilarity. Download now, because your mind deserves a little indulgence. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're diving into a paper that explores how training can influence the judgments of intelligence analysts. The paper is titled Effect of Calibration Training on the Calibration of Intelligence Analyst Judgments by Megan O. Kelly and David R. Mandel. It's a fascinating look at a vital area of decision-making expertise. Calibration in judgment is crucial. Think of it as the accuracy of one's confidence levels. If you're 80% confident in your predictions, for example, in an ideally calibrated world, you'd be right 80% of the time. The paper delves into calibration training, a method thought to refine this accuracy. This is significant because effective judgments can be the difference between accuracy and error in high-stakes situations. In their study, the authors test a commercial calibration training program on a group of 70 Canadian intelligence analysts. They're looking at whether the training can influence the alignment between analysts' confidence and the accuracy of their judgments. The study targets two types of judgments, 
interval estimation and binary choice tasks. In an interval estimation, analysts provide a range within which they believe the true value will fall. For binary tasks, they make a yes-no decision. Before we get into the methodology, there are some complex terms here we need to unpack. Calibration refers to the relationship between an analyst's confidence and their accuracy. Miscalibration can be overconfidence or underconfidence. Miscalibration can lead to bad judgment calls and poses significant risk, especially intelligence work. This makes the study pretty important. It aims to enhance how precisely analysts can predict outcomes based on their own estimation. Let's hammer out the study's methodology. It used a pre- and post-training design, so they tested the analysts before and after the course. The course contained elements like video modules, tests, and strategies intended to increase calibration. The development of calibration skill throughout the course is interesting. It included the equivalent BET test, which helps gauge true uncertainty, and Klein's pre-mortem, which encourages analysts to assume their judgment is wrong and adjust based on that. They paid careful attention to whether analysts became more precise in their confidence intervals and more accurate in binary choices. And here's what they found. Post-training, the analysts showed improvement in their overall calibration. But here's a twist. While their interval estimations improved in calibration, binary choices did the opposite, with increased underconfidence. Exactly, which suggests that training may shift analyst bias towards less confidence rather than enhancing their ability to monitor their judgments. This might stem from the nature of the tasks or the contexts in which judgment was made. That's a profound insight because it shows that training's effectiveness can vary based on the type of judgment task. And it also calls into question how these improvements will translate into real-world analysis. Now, in terms of implications, this study can guide intelligence agencies considering calibration training for their analysts. It helps them see what works and what doesn't. Plus, it invites future research on how analysts apply their training. It's also relevant beyond intelligence analysis. Calibration affects all fields where judgment calls are made, from medicine to finance. Better calibration training can lead to better decision-making across the board. So in conclusion, this paper gives us food for thought on how we understand confidence and accuracy. It challenges us to consider how we can train experts not only in intelligence but in various other domains to make the best informed decisions possible. Yet, we should also reflect on how this training translates outside of experimental settings into the unpredictability of the real world. Exactly, Tom. As fascinating as calibration training is, the ultimate test of its effectiveness is in the complex and messy environment that analysts operate in daily. And that wraps up today's in-depth analysis. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we continue to unravel the complex world of human judgment and decision-making. Are you an intelligence analyst? Tired of feeling like your confidence compass needs a tune-up? Or a Monday morning quarterback whose hindsight is more 2200 than 2020? Introducing Calibraination, the revolutionary new training program for anyone whose guesses could use a guesstimate makeover. Our state-of-the-art system, based on the groundbreaking paper, Effective Calibration Training on the Calibration of Intelligence Analyst Judgments, is here to turn your maybes into probablys and your I thinks into I knows. Got overconfidence? 
Calibraination's patented confidence crunches will get your certainty in shape faster than you can say statistical significance. Underconfident? Our binary bicep curls will have you lifting the weight of uncertainty with ease. And with our interval estimation yoga, you'll be stretching your ranges so far, you could predict the weather on a planet you've never even heard of. So, don't wait. Sign up now and we'll throw in a free crystal ball. It's purely decorative, but hey, it looks cool on a desk. Calibrination, where your guesses get their best guesses. Join today and make your judgment something you can judge confidently. Hello and welcome back to our award-winning podcast, where we delve into intriguing scientific studies that shed light on the intricacies of the world around us. I'm your host, Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we have a rather fascinating topic lined up for you. We're going to break down the paper studying child-directed speech by Vera Kempe and Marisa Casillas, as contributed to the Oxford Handbook of Approaches to Language Evolution. That's right, Jen. Child-directed speech, or CDS, is a term that might not be familiar to everyone, so let's start from scratch. CDS refers to the specialized way we talk to children, often characterized by higher pitch, slower rate, and exaggerated intonation, among other features. Exactly, Tom. And while many might dismiss this as mere baby talk, CDS is intensely significant in the field of language evolution and development. How adults speak to children can influence linguistic transmission and even shape the very structure of language as it passes from one generation to the next. The paper in question dives into the myriad questions posed by research into CDS, the methods used to investigate these questions, and what the evidence tells us about the mechanisms that produce CDS, its effects, and how to frame future research in a way that acknowledges the vast cultural diversity and richness of children's learning environments. Before we dig into the core of the study, it's helpful to understand why this paper is such a cornerstone in its domain. Language evolution is a bedrock process in human development, and by delving into the nuances of CDS, we get invaluable insights into how language evolves to be teachable and learnable. Right you are, Jen. And this isn't just about fancy terms or academic jargon. At the heart of it, this research helps us understand how parents and caregivers naturally adapt their speech to facilitate a child's language acquisition, an essential part of our cognitive development. On to the key concepts our listeners need to grasp. The paper doesn't shy away from technical vocabulary using terms like prosodic features, which refer to the rhythm, stress, and intonation of speech, or morphosyntax to discuss sentence structure and word formation rules. They also go into phonological features, which deal with the system and pattern of sounds in a language, and vowel space, the area in which vowel sounds fall within the mouth. Let's not forget hyperspeech hypothesis, which suggests that the clear articulation in CDS helps children distinguish between different speech sounds, contributing to their phonological development. Now, getting to the meat of the research, the paper sets out to compare features of CDS with adult-directed speech, or ADS, investigates how CDS varies across cultures, socioeconomic statuses, and in response to different developmental needs, and deeply considers the impact of CDS on language learning outcomes. Methodologically, they've pulled data from an array of sources, from controlled laboratory settings to naturalistic in-home recordings. They use high-tech software for acoustic analysis 
and they've even utilized modern tools like the Language Environment Analysis System, or LENA, for large-scale, day-long audio recordings of children's linguistic environments. The findings are a mixed bag in terms of whether CDS is consistently beneficial across all linguistic features. For instance, while certain prosodic cues in CDS seem to facilitate language learning, the same can't be said universally for phonological features. And when we consider the paper's implications, it's clear that understanding CDS can ripple out to affect how we approach early education, how we design interventions for language disorders, and even how we structure societal support for parenting and child development. For the conclusion, it's important to circle back to the paper's central takeaway. CDS is not a universal constant in child language development. Instead, it's a complex, culturally situated phenomenon that merits further exploration, particularly in underrepresented communities. Personally, Tom, I found it fascinating how CDS can inform us so much about adult-child interactions and teaching in general, how caregivers instinctively adjust their speech patterns to engage and educate reveals so much about the human capacity for communication and learning. I couldn't agree more, Jen. It's a reminder of the intricate dance between our biological predispositions and the cultural milieu we navigate. It makes you think about the profound ways we're wired to foster the next generation's understanding of language. And with that, we wrap up today's episode. We hope you found it as enlightening as we did. Don't forget to hit subscribe for more deep dives into the fascinating world of scientific research. Until next time, this is Jen. And Tom, signing off. Keep questioning, keep learning, and keep listening. Are you tired of your baby looking at you like you're speaking another language? Well, now they don't have to. Introducing Baby Blabber, the app that turns your adult-directed speech into child-directed super speech. With our patented hyperspeech technology, every word you say will be transformed into the optimal sound for your baby's learning. Your mundane past the salt, please becomes a captivating, sing-songy past the salt. Pretty please. Forget about spending hours trying to perfect your motherese. Baby Blabber has you covered. Whether you're discussing stocks with your partner or just complaining about traffic, Baby Blabber makes sure your infant hears it in a language they understand. Fun. And it's not just about pitch and tone. Our morphosyntax modifier will simplify your sentence structures on the fly so that the economic implications are disastrous becomes money sad. Oh. Worried about vowel space? Fret no more. Baby Blabber's vowel visuality feature helps you exaggerate those vowel sounds with guided on-screen mouth shapes. Watch as your baby's giggles turn into linguistic gains. It's as easy as one, two, goo goo. Simply download Baby Blabber, speak into your phone, and voila, you're a CDS pro. Embrace the whimsy of parenthood without sacrificing a bit of your adult conversation. Baby Blabber, where every word counts and counts as fun. Download now and turn your tyke's babble into babelicious brain food. Welcome to our award-winning podcast, where today's episode unfolds a fascinating paper in the realm of cognitive neuroscience and psychophysiology. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Together, we're going to dive deep into the insightful study titled Error-related electromyographic activity over the corrugator supercilii is associated with neural performance monitoring by Nathaniel Elkins-Brown, Blair Saunders, and Michael Inslicht from the University of Toronto.
That's right, Jen. But first, let's set the stage for our listeners. Understanding our brain's response to errors is crucial because it informs us how we monitor our actions and adjust our behavior effectively. Imagine the benefits in critical contexts like driving or operating machinery. Absolutely, Tom, and our focus today lies on the intricate dance of facial muscles, brain waves, and what happens when we slip up. Oh, the drama of a mistake. We'll be exploring key terms like electromyography, EMG, which is like an EKG, but for muscles, measuring their electrical activity. Specifically, we're looking at the corrugator supercilia, the frowny muscle above your eyebrows, that contracts when we're angry or concentrating. And let's not forget about our brain's alarm system to errors, the event-related potentials, ERPs. To name a couple, there's the error-related negativity, ERN, a kind of uh-oh spike in brain activity right after a mistake, and the error positivity, a sign that our brain has registered the error. This paper is groundbreaking because for the first time, it's trying to connect the dots between the furrowing of our brows and these specific brain waves indicating how we evaluate our performance. In doing so, the team has introduced an inhibitory control task. Think of it like a digital game of red light, green light under various conditions. The performance during these activities and how our brain and muscles react to errors provides a window into the depths of cognitive control and effective processes. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the core of this intriguing paper. The researchers designed an experiment where participants played a simple but tricky game that involved responding to letters on a screen. They were to press specific buttons based on the letters displayed, with one catch. Some letters were seen less frequently, making them trickier to react to correctly. It's like the brain gets into a rhythm with the more common letters, and then, bam, an infrequent one pops up, and it's easy to mess up. Each time participants aired, a loud or soft noise followed, adding a layer of drama to the reaction. But here's the cool part. They measured brow muscle activity with EMG while tracking brain responses with EEG. They were curious if that frown muscle twitch was not just an expression of frustration, but was also telling us something about the neural processes kicking in when we make a mistake. They predicted that the corrugator muscle activity would relate to how our brain processed errors, represented by those error-related potentials. Let's discuss the methodology. Participants had electrodes on their scalp to record brain waves and on their faces to capture the action of the causative's muscle. When the inevitable errors happened, because let's face it, we're all human, researchers noted an uptick in corrugator activity, and crucially, this muscle activity was connected to the PE wave in the brain, hinting that our brains were aware of the goof and possibly orienting towards it. It's like the brain and the brow were in a duet, singing the song of, whoops, let's not do that again. So what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? This connection between facial expression and the deeper neural workings of the brain offers us a new vantage point to study cognitive control and the role of emotions in it. This paper essentially ties in motor responses, that's the forehead frown, to cognitive and emotional responses, painting a more comprehensive picture of the performance monitoring system. And for the final act, let's reflect on why this study is a big deal. It opens doors to potentially understanding how our physical reactions, like a furrowed brow, tie in with our internal error checking and awareness mechanisms. It could change how we understand learning from mistakes 
and developing new strategies for cognitive therapies, education, and even technologies that interact with our innate response systems. Multitasking could be improved, negative feedback in learning environments refined, and AI could become more intuitive to our nonverbal cues. Stitching it all together, we saw how a simple facial muscle's movement is intimately linked with the intricate symphony of brain activity that happens when we mess up. It's a discovery that could have real-world implications, from how we handle stress to optimizing performance in any number of tasks. Thanks for tuning in to our exploration of this paper's rich tapestry. Until next time, keep those brows relaxed and those brains engaged. Have you ever made a mistake and just wished someone or something could pat you on the back and say, it's okay, buddy? Introducing Brow Be Aware, the quirky new gadget inspired by the paper, error-related electromyographic activity over the corrugator supercilii is associated with neural performance monitoring. This nifty device sits comfortably on your forehead, reading your brows every twitch and frown with state-of-the-art EMG technology. Made a typo? Your brow be aware will sense your corrugator supercilia's betrayal and offer soothing words of encouragement, like, whoops-a-daisy, you'll get it next time. But wait, there's more. With its ERN and P-wave detection, it doesn't just read your physical responses, it understands your brain's cry for a do-over. It's like having a tiny personal coach glued to your face, cheering you on through every brain blip and finger slip. So give yourself a break and let brow be aware turn that furrow upside down because every mistake is a step toward a greater you and your brows know it. Available now wherever curious and slightly odd tech gadgets are sold. Get your brow be aware today and never frown alone at your errors again. Terms and conditions apply. The device cannot actually prevent brow furrowing or mistakes. Always wear a smile on your face and brow be aware on your forehead. Welcome back to our in-depth podcast series. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Today we'll dive into a fascinating paper that tackles a highly relevant topic in academia. How do changes to policies, systems, and environments in universities affect mental health and well-being? That's right, Jen. Mental health among students and staff in universities is increasingly becoming a concern. Factors like high study loads and low sense of belonging can lead to issues like anxiety and depression, which are more prevalent among university populations compared to the general public. And it's not just the students, Tom. University staff are under considerable stress and might experience burnout, often caused by systemic issues such as high workloads, lack of support, and declining funding. This systematic mixed studies review by Xuan Lu and colleagues from the University of Newcastle is significant because it shifts focus from individual level interventions to changes in the university setting itself, policies, systems, and environments, or PSE for short. It's a call for a whole of university or WOU approach. This means integrating action across all university levels and areas, including learning and working conditions. To do this, the authors conducted a systematic mixed studies review using several databases, including APA PsychInfo, Medline via Ovid, and Web of Science, to find qualitative, quantitative, and mixed method studies. After an extensive search and application of their criteria, they ended up with 18 studies to review. These studies were critically appraised using a tool called the Mixed Methods Appraisal Tool, or MMAT, 
to assess study quality and risk of bias. Interestingly, while all 18 studies evaluated PSE changes in relation to students' mental health, they identified two domains where these changes occurred, changes to learning and teaching and changes to student-focused policy. In terms of actual mental health outcomes, the studies looked at positive aspects like life satisfaction and resilience alongside negative outcomes such as stress and depression. However, most studies showed a moderate to high risk of bias, Tom, which is something to keep in mind. That's right, Jen. The authors concluded that the evidence on how PSE changes affect student mental health and well-being is mixed. There's also a distinct need for more rigorous, complexity-oriented study designs. They also pointed out the lack of research focus on university staff, which is concerning given the high stress levels reported by staff in higher education. So, Jen, this begs the question, where does this leave us? It leaves us at a point where universities need to take a hard look at their entire ecosystem if they're to improve mental health for everyone involved in a way that's backed by rigorous research. That's a wrap for today's session. We've peered into a complex issue with no easy solutions, but one that clearly demands our attention. And remember, while we review the research out there, the real challenge is for universities to enact these changes and for us to support those shifts in a quest for healthier academic environments. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time for another insightful discussion. Until then, keep questioning and stay curious. Have you ever felt the pang of anxiety just walking into a lecture hall? Or maybe your office on campus is starting to look more like a haunted house of stress. Well, fear no more. Introducing EduEase, the ultimate university wellness magnifier. EduEase is not your typical consultancy company. Picture a group of ninja consultants sliding into your university DMs. Armed with bubble wrap for stress popping, beanbag barriers for unsafe workloads, and mood-lifting wall paint in every office. With our patent-pending Joyalysis, we dive into the nitty-gritty of your university's policies and systems. We extract every ounce of anxiety and replace it with a tablespoon of tranquility, a dash of delight, and just a pinch of pizzazz. Having trouble with your course load? Try our curriculum calmer, now with added empathy. Pesky parking problem poking at your peace? Our serene parking solution turns that concrete jungle into a zen garden on wheels. So, if you're ready to transform your university from a pressure cooker to a paradise of productivity, give Eduiz a call. We're here to turn your academic frown upside down, or at least into a mildly amused smirk. Eduiz, because a healthy mind is a terrible thing to waste on stress. Whispers, terms and conditions may apply. Mental well-being cannot be guaranteed, but can be vastly improved. See website for details. Thank you.